Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. We are a podcast and publication about moderate politics, in particular about how we can have a discourse that avoids a culture war. Hence the name, about being between two warring trenches. The podcast is run by me, Steve O'Neill, and my collaborator Martin Rogers. We tend to be joined each week by a guest to talk us through a topic in depth, and you can find us on Medium or wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and please do follow us and leave a review. Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. We meet today in the aftermath of a Labour conference generally considered to have gone fairly well, while the Conservatives conference has gone less well and is generally considered to have torn themselves apart. The historical echoes nicely set up a discussion of the last time both of these things happened together the New Labour era. So the legacy of New Labour remains a huge talking point within Labour and British politics more widely. As the parties look ahead to the next general election, we ask what they should and what they should not learn from Labour's legacy. So we're delighted to be joined by Dr Lise Butler of City University and Dr Colin Murphy of Queen Mary. Lise, please start by uh, introducing yourself and welcome both of you and um, uh, if you could set us up and both of you were telling us why you are interested in studying new labor um hi there and um thank you so much for uh having me on the podcast um so um i am a historian uh of modern british politics and a historian of the british left and i should say at the outset that i don't particular particularly consider myself um an expert on new labor um though i do consider our other guests here colin to be one um uh but i am a, a historian of left-wing politics interested primarily in the relationship between uh left-wing political thought and social science and my research is actually primarily focused on the period between the 1940s and the 1970s. Um, but through that, I've become increasingly interested in the history of left-wing campaigns for constitutional reform and for democratic reform, um, and specifically campaigns for government transparency and freedom of information, um, which had their origins in the 1960s um, and the 70s, and which arguably came to fruition in the constitutional reforms of the Blair government. So I'm quite interested in the ways that this sort of legacy of activism, of campaigning and of uh, policy thought um, reveals longstanding anxieties about, uh, about the British state um, across the left and the center left of the political spectrum um, and the ways in which a quite radical program of constitutional reform was really integrated into the policy program of New Labour in the 1990s. So while I think there's been a great deal of work that's really examined new labor from a sort of economic perspective and in terms of uh, major big headline reforms like the overturning of clause four um, or questions about whether Blair was a Thatcherite or not. I'm quite interested in the ways in which questions about the state and constitutional reform filtered into the Blair political project. Um, so as I say, I'm not really, I think, you know, on the face of it, a historian of new labor, strictly speaking, but I consider myself broadly a historian of the left. I teach the history of the British left um, more broadly. Um, and uh, I think new labor is an incredibly interesting place to think through a lot of these broader issues and some of the broader fissures um, and, and tensions actually within the British left more broadly. Thank you. Uh, Colin, 
please uh, welcome, welcome and please introduce yourself. Thank you. And thank you very much for inviting me onto the podcast. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. So I'm a lecturer in British politics and like Lise, I'm a historian of British politics in, since uh, roughly 1945 and also of the left in Britain and in uh, Western Europe more broadly. And I'm very interested in New Labour because my first research project, my PhD, was about more or less the origins of New Labour um, and also the alternatives that were shut down once New Labour emerged in the 1990s. So I looked a lot at the late 20th century and the turmoil within the British left as it responded to a succession of severe electoral losses as, uh, as it responded to ideological and political disorientation, particularly during the 1970s and then during the 1980s, and how those challenges, and also how it responded to apparent social transformations, class transformation, cultural transformation, and economic transformation, and how labor strategists, MPs, and thinkers conceived all those challenges and how they produced a number of answers and New Labour was a very powerful answer that emerged in the 1990s. And I became really interested as a historian in explaining why it emerged, when it did, and why others were shut down. So that's why I'm interested in New Labour. Brilliant. Thank you. So before we get into the main topic, I'd really like to hear what both of you think about the last couple of weeks of politics, covering the party conference season and, of course, the, um, the budget that wasn't but certainly was in its effect. So could you just tell us about the very, very recent history of the last couple of weeks in your assessments? Um, well, it's been an extraordinary few weeks uh, in politics. Um, the Conservative Party are clearly in a political tailspin. Um, uh, Liz Truss has proven even more disastrous uh, as a prime minister than she did as a political candidate. Um, and um, Kwasi Kwarteng, has sullied the reputation of people with PhDs in history with his disastrous economic reforms. Um, meanwhile, I think Labour has finally managed to put forward a real offer to the electorate, which is distinctive and which is popular. Um, and it has enjoyed a breathtaking surge in the polls. We'll see whether or not that, that holds, of course. Um, so this has certainly been entertaining, um, but, um, but more seriously, um, I am... Uh, both optimistic about the possibilities for a resurgence for the left, but also um, deeply concerned about the damage that the trust government uh, might be able to do in the course of the next few years, uh, which they are likely to, to have uh, in government. Um, and crucially, the opportunity that this term in office provides for trust and Quartang to utterly dismantle social services uh, and the welfare state over the course of their tenure. So um, both a time of, of excitement and interest um, and also of some uh, quite profound anxieties about the future of this country. Yeah, I have little to add to that very comprehensive analysis by Lise. I would just say that um, it's clear that uh, the trust governments have in quite a catastrophic and swift way ceded political momentum and narrative control. And that is, I, I, you know, it's quite astonishing just how quickly they've managed to do that. Um, and I agree with Lee that from a Labour perspective, their conference was quite clearly a success. From a party manager's point of view, it was a very disciplined conference. From a leader's point of view, it got favourable media coverage and polling numbers. And potentially as well from the point of view of the soft left, given some um, policy commitments on the Green New Deal and uh, Great British Energy and um, 
uh, a massive increase in renewable energy. And criticism, like uh, criticism around the, the Al Jazeera documentary and the anti-Semitism crisis, was very, you know, did not get picked up beyond a, a very small section of, of the left. So in that's kind of my political read. The, the other thing I would add is there's been growing criticism in some quarters of the very idea of party membership sovereignty in election leaders and the difficulties that might pose for the wider British constitution and its democratic legitimacy. And since the Liz Truss government has come in and, uh, you know, tried to perform a radical U-turn on some manifesto commitments that they were elected on only a couple of years before, I have seen growing criticism of that system, including today the protest by Greenpeace activists um, during Liz Truss's speech, which I find interesting. Um, and I wonder if that's going to be a political trend that continues. Right. Thank you. So let's start, if I may, with a historical question, given both of yours expertise. Can you place new Labour within the history and traditions of the Labour Party itself? Some people say that the uh, on the left who sort of criticise new Labour say that it was something different, whereas others say it was more a part of um, the Labour sort of tradition that goes back many years that just hadn't been as prominent in the years before New Labour. So could you just put the, the New Labour part of Labour's history in the wider historical context of the party and the movement, please? Uh, shall I come in on that? Um, I mean, this is a huge conversation um, and it's one that I often ask my students when teaching New Labour, um, where do we situate this and how do we make sense of this um, New Labour? I think a lot of ideological traditions can lay claim to new labor. Um, new labor has been claimed for a sort of liberal tradition going back to Edwardian new liberalism. Um, it's certainly been claimed by the revisionist tradition uh, of Hugh Gateskill and others um, associated with, you know, particularly ideas uh, associated with um, uh, getting rid of clause four. Um, it's been seen by many as a capitulation to Thatcherism. Um, I'm personally quite convinced actually by Colin's argument on this, that new labor uh, comes from a, uh, a, a much wider and much more pluralistic uh, intellectual tradition on the left um, and embraced many ideas that were on the left as, as well as on the right um, of British politics. Um, so I think perhaps perhaps I'll let Colin come in on that uh, to, to elaborate because it's very much his argument, but I think New Labour was very successful at actually mobilizing a lot of the policies uh, and the priorities that had been really put forward by, by the left in the 1980s and the 1990s. Thanks, Lisa. It's very kind of you to say. Um, I think certainly, uh, like Lisa just said, New Labour drew uh, energy from the history of, of New Liberalism. Um, I mean, you know, Tony Blair actively called on and drew upon ideas of the progressive dilemma a particular concept developed by David Marquand, where the, the kind of progressive forces in Britain are split between liberals and Labour and they need to be united. Blair definitely kind of pays lip service to that in the 90s and draws some ideas from, uh, from that tradition. Um, Blair and Brown were also very willing to um, draw upon the revisionist tradition. Um, Gordon Brown in 2006 said that Tony Croson was a modernizer before the word became current and very much saw New Labour as part of the British tradition of revising what socialism means given wider uh, social and economic and electoral changes. 
Um, Lisa uh, was mentioned there that in my own work, I looked a lot at the late 20th century and there were a number of currents which New Labour drew upon. So it drew upon a class analysis that um, in parts of the country, there was what was called the new working class, something Neil Kinnock, uh, a, a term Neil Kinnock used, which um, benefited from Nigel Lawson, Margaret Thatcher's chancellor, his um, consumption boom and uh, was more likely to own a house and to go on holiday. And they were concentrated in swing seats in the South and Midlands. The New Labour needed to electorally appeal to these voters and to allay their fears about what a Labour government might mean for things like interest rates and mortgage rates. I think that's become very, very relevant in the past couple of weeks. New Labour also drew, um, as well as from a sort of class and electoral analysis developed by everybody from social democrats like Alvar Crewe to Marxists like Eric Cosborne, New Labour also drew on a set of policy agendas so the minimum wage is a very good example here. It's a, a very old policy that had been advocated by many different traditions, but for various reasons had not been enacted by Labour governments. New, New Labour enacted it. It also drew on what Lisa's an expert in and might want to come in and speak about on yeah. constitutional politics. Um, there's a real ideological energy in the late 1980s onwards about the need for Britain to have radical and foundational constitutional reform, particularly because Margaret Thatcher's government is exploiting it by doing things like closing down the Greater London Council, imposing the poll tax on Scotland um, before uh, and any other uh, part of the country, despite having very, very few MPs in Scotland. And uh, New Labour definitely and directly draws upon uh, groups like Charter 88 and constitutional reformists in the 90s. And you can trace a lot of the key New Labour policies in the late 90s, like um, the creation of the parliaments um, and devolution, like the creation of the mayor of London, to those intellectual traditions, those more recent intellectual traditions on the left, as well as from revisionism and new liberalism. If I can come back in, there's a couple more things I'd add to this. Um, one, which is um, not actually uh, what Colin was pointing towards, um, but one tradition that is present in New Labour is uh, that of ethical socialism. Um, and it's complex, and you know, there's questions about how meaningful the policy em emphasis it was, but you can certainly see the legacy of uh, thinkers, you know, the, the classic ethical socialist tradition associated with thinkers like G.D.H. Cole, um, or more contemporary figures like Michael Young, um, who were very keen to emphasize a kind of uh, uh, pluralistic, uh, communitarian, um, and quite family-oriented um, discourse within within labor, and you can see aspects of that in, for example, the 1997 manifesto with its, its emphasis on families. Um, so that harkens back to another labor tradition, um, and then. Um, two more ideas. Uh, so a uh, column has mentioned constitutional politics and a deep anxiety about the existing institutions of the British state, both in their non-transparency and in their authoritarianism. Um, so a, a kind of urgent, uh, urgent need to uh, reform the British state to make it more representative and more democratic, um, which had been a longstanding theme in labor manifestos from the 1960s onwards, um, but which really uh, culminates in 1997, in uh, particularly in the manifesto section, to clean up politics. Um, we see the Blair government taking forward projects which had been um, put, which had been on the agenda of both the left and the right of the party uh, for a long time. Um, and another strand there, which again is coming from very different places, and again, which column is written about um, very well, is our ideas about the, the changing nature of the British economy and British society. Mm. 
and the disillusion uh, or, or uh, yeah, the, dis the disillusion of the traditional working class. Um, and again, this is an anxiety which um, has is central to the left from the the 1950s onwards, this notion that labor's traditional voter base of the traditional working class is, is going to go and that that's going to cause a, an electoral problem for labor. Um, and I think notably, we can see both of these strands of concerns about constitutional reform and concerns about demographic change um, coming from all sorts of different places. We can see them coming um, from uh, from the center, from coming from the, for example, the SDP. Um, and there's certainly a lot of crossover between labor and SDP thought. Uh, in, in these areas. And we can also see them coming from um, much more far left voices from places like the pages of Marxism today, um, and uh, even from um, commentators like uh, Tony Benn, who are very concerned with, with similar issues. So labor is really bringing together a pretty vast swath of intellectual um, influences in a whole variety of different areas. Yeah, the final crucial point to make, though, is that um, and this maybe we'll get onto this in the podcast, but New Labour were able to crystallise the key elements of those traditions into a policy and electoral package that did not spook the horses. And that is something that makes it historically significant because um, it was able to take ideas that were being advocated by uh, thinkers who, for one reason or another, were not being um, listened to and sometimes cut themselves off from the British political mainstream. And New Labour were able to package certain policies like the minimum wage, like a new approach to, the, to um uh, redistribution in ways that were politically acceptable given the, the political constraints of the 1990s. Well, that's a perfect segue because I wanted to get on to talk about a bit of an assessment of what New Labour were good at and perhaps bad at before we go on to perhaps what politicians today can learn from them. Um, so perhaps they're best known um, popularly for winning elections. So maybe we could start with you, Colm, and and you talk to us about why you think New Labour were so successful at winning those three elections in a row. Yeah, I mean, it is quite historically rare for the Labour Party to be that successful in elections. Um, if we think about modern electioneering since the late 19th century, the standout successful party has been the Conservatives, not, not Labour, with a little period for the Liberals. But Labour just historically have not succeeded at elections like New Labour did. So that means that New Labour is a model that is at very least worth looking at. I think it's worth recognising that New Labour was successful at elections, partly because it had a relatively benign context, certainly compared to um, other periods in Labour's history. So in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was facing a badly divided opposition, particularly on the issue of Europe, but also on quite emotive cultural issues like bringing back hanging or sexuality or um, even economic policy too. And it was also um, pursuing elections against the backdrop of quite benign economic growth, certainly compared to the 1980s and early 1990s, which meant that some of the attacks on Labour and particularly attacks about how Labour uh, would screw up an economic crisis um, a la the myth of the 1970s, um, had less teeth. And uh, it also meant that Labour could uh, distribute the proceeds of more broad-based growth in ways that were politically popular. So it is worth recognising that, as with the case with any political movement, there's a bit of luck here. But you do make your own luck in some respects. So 
I think there's some quite key elements of, of the new Labour package that worked in the 1990s anyway. It had very strong message discipline, very strong message discipline, almost kind of infamously so in some respects, but that did work with the particular media culture of the time. And it had a very charismatic leadership. Um, Blair, at least until the Iraq war, was a very charismatic figure um, in the Weberian sense. He was able to alchemize political constituencies of support from across different sectors of, of society, um, which is uh, a kind of a hard, a, a characteristic that's hard to pin down, but the most successful politicians have it. Um, they had a clear intellectual analysis that Lisa and I have already um, uh, kind of laid out, and that meant that they had some clear policies. So boosting education is the route to economic growth in the 90s and 2000s and to equality of opportunity. A Labour government should have targeted action on poverty and long-term unemployment. It should be tough on crime, but also tough on, on the causes of crime in the famous phrase through um, targeted interventions like so the social exclusion unit. And it should have an agenda of seismic constitutional reform. And it would illustrate these this kind of key programme that drew from the intellectual, intellectual analysis through particular headline policies. So a windfall tax. Um, to fund a new deal for youth unemployment. So it took a key issue, um, long-term youth unemployment, a legacy of the 1980s. It windfall tax um, privatised industries and then used that to fund what it called a new deal for um, the long-term youth unemployed. That is a cl clear symbolic policy that synthesised all of the different elements and uh, put it forward in an electorally appealing and simple uh, way. And we could also talk about the minimum wage in that, in that kind of analysis too. So those are the key elements of why it was electorally successful that I would draw out. Lisa, I'm sure we'll have other things to add. Um, I, I agree with everything you've said, um, and I think that's um, fairly comprehensive. Um, there's, of course, you know, famous, uh, famous aspects of the new labor sort of success story, which have to do with, you know, really kind of uh, conscious use of the press. It was the sun what won it, um, whatever, uh, an attempt to really appeal much more to middle class voters to win over formerly conservative um, voters. I agree completely uh, with Colm's em emphasis on uh, really clear political messaging, but really combined with deep policy thinking, right? So not just political messaging for its own sake, uh, but political messaging combined with a really real sort of sense of detail orientation. Um, and um, I mean, finally, I do think it's worth saying that, you know, as with any election, uh, you know, uh, oppositions don't just don't just uh, win elections, governments lose them. Um, and um, the the, the 1997 election was was very much an election that the conservative government lost. It was not particularly high turnout. It was actually a record post-war low of 71.2 percent, um, and the labor vote share was only 30.9 percent. Right. So um, whilst we think of this as this massive electoral triumph, which of course it was and, and would and would prove ultimately to be, um, it was a moment very much where the conservatives were in utter disarray, um, and uh, uh, and it was in some ways, arguably an election that was labors for the, for the taking. Colin might have an alternative perspective on that, but um, I, I think the sort of, uh, the, perhaps the less triumphant aspect of that story is important as well. 
No, I think that's right. I mean, uh, we do underestimate just quite how chaotic the Conservatives were in 97. You had the spectre of hundreds of Tory candidates disavowing their own manifesto, like only like weeks before the election, eggs on by the Times. The specific pledge was whether um, a Conservative government would completely rule out joining the Eurozone. And, you know, there was no agreed a Tory MP position on their own manifesto. That was how chaotic the Tory campaign was in 97. That is a factor that we should always remember. The point about turnout is important too. It feels like some deja vu in terms of uh, conservative chaos before, or not too long before an election there, but maybe we'll get back to that in a second. So if that was why Labour were good at winning elections, I'm also interested in thinking about whether New Labour were actually good when they were in government. So what is both your assessments on whether they were successful at governing and, and particularly how much do you agree with the, the sort of common charge that New Labour sort of missed an opportunity to do more? Um, maybe we'll start with Lisa on that one. Um, sure, yeah. I mean, broadly speaking, yes, I think New Labour was extremely successful at, at governing and su extremely successful on their own terms. Um, in their first few years in office, the Blair government um, uh, uh, reduced unemployment, uh, public debt decreased, um, the government was able to invest in public services like health and education, they were able to institute a uh, minimum wage, uh, they reduced child poverty through the working families tax credit and the children's tax credit, and according to the Child Poverty Action Group, the number of children in poverty dropped by 1.2 million in Britain between 1997 and uh, 2001. Um, and they were also able to enact legislation like incorporating the European Convention on Human Rights into UK law by statute. And they were able to uh, legislate uh, uh, referendums uh, on devolution in uh, Scotland and Wales and uh, bring back directly elected mayors uh, in London and many other cities. Um, so on their own terms, I think they were immensely successful at least um, initially. Um, were were there missed opportunities? There were massive missed opportunities. Um, they did not reduce inequality. It stayed relatively stable throughout the new labor years. Um, they, uh, of course, undertook um, disastrous uh, for, foreign policy. Um, and um, they didn't counter the growth of regional and social inequality. Um, and in terms of the constitutional reform agenda, um, they were able to do some things like, for example, enact a Freedom of Information Act, though Blair would come to be quite cynical about the implications of that subsequently. But um, and, uh, and, uh, but while they, for example, paid lip, lip service to things like electoral reform, um, that didn't ultimately get off the ground. Um, so in many ways, they were immensely successful on their own terms, um, but uh, there were many, many missed opportunities as well. Yeah, I, I I broadly agree with that too. I think that's that's the balanced characterization of New Labour. They were most successful on their own terms, but there were lots of missed opportunities, um, particularly in hindsight. What I would add is um even the redistribution they did achieve was um not only as Lee says, not arresting the growth. Not reversing the growth and inequality over the 1980s, merely stopping it rising any further, which is an achievement. But perhaps for a government of the centre left, you would have higher hopes. You would want to reverse that increase in inequality, um, which was quite pronounced in the 1980s, rather than simply hold it in its place. But as well as that problem, there's the political issue 
um, that the main mechanism for um, certainly addressing income inequality were, was tax credits um, pursued uh, by Gordon Brown and Ed Balls and the Treasury team, which were a technocrat's dream um, in that they were, were very effective and avoided some of the political attacks that a more full frontal uh, redistributive agenda would have had from a hostile media and from swing voters. However, because of uh, their stealth nature, they were stealth taxes and stealth redistribution, they were not um, embedded into the political architecture and were very easy to reverse after 2010 um, uh, in the austerity years. So they were achievements, but they were vulnerable in a way that other reforms that New Labour achieved, like the minimum wage, which were more institutional, were more long lasting. So I think that's an area where New Labour perhaps failed even on their own terms, um, because they didn't embed some of their key reforms into government. Um, there's also the point that, as is quite well known, Blair and Brown's relationship over that government completely broke down, and that did sabotage both men's agendas in different ways. We could think about Blair and the Eurozone, or Brown and um, uh, a sort of new settlement on tax and spend. And there are other areas um, like public services reform too, where the agendas of both men were effectively derailed because by the mid 2000s, the government was sclerotic um, because of their personal relationship and the factionalism inside the government. Lise mentioned this, but we can't really have this conversation without touching on the legacy of the Iraq war. Um, I just I just want to get both your reflections on what that what that says about the new Labour era. So maybe I'll start with, start with Colin on that one. Yeah, I mean, the Iraq war is just a disaster. I I, I wish I could have a more sophisticated answer um, because it is a, a serious subject that deserves um, a serious analysis. And I would particularly highlight books by Patrick Porter and um, articles by uh, my colleague, James Ellison, who are quite uh, astute analysts of the Iraq war and the decision to go to war in Iraq um, from the UK perspective. But it was just a disaster. Um, liberal internationalism is not indefensible as an idea by any means. And I think actually um, more recent geopolitical history has reminded us of, of its place. But it has to be cautious and based on a clear eyed reading of military and geopolitical relations. Otherwise, there's likely to fail. And the Iraq war failed on a number of uh, criteria there. Um, it burnt relations with European partners. It didn't really gain much of a special relationship, which was one of its um, goals. We can talk about military failures and the um, inability to um, uh, create a democracy in, in Iraq, which, of course, is a lot to do with America. But Britain had a role and it was a disaster for political trust, too. Now, what does it say about New Labour? Well, um, I think it says a lot about Blair and um, Blair's search for a legacy, particularly given um, the control over domestic policy by Brown's treasury and given that competition that I just mentioned, Blair was searching for a legacy. And also, I think this is fair to say about Blair, he does sometimes have a messianic complex. Um, uh, there's that perhaps maybe related to his, his strong Christian socialism and ethical socialism. Blair's motivated by um, religious beliefs that give him perhaps a certain perspective on things. Um, but Blair developed a messianic complex on the Iraq war. He, As he said, he, it, it's worse than you think, I actually believe this. And he really did believe it. And because he was such a powerful prime minister, certainly compared to more recent prime ministers, um, that did 
allow a misguided policy to be pursued longer than it should have done. And the competition with Brown, which I've, I mentioned a couple of times, was relevant here because it also um, hindered um, effective constraints on Blair's power because Brown was fighting him on domestic agenda and, as he said, uh, didn't feel like he had the political capital to um, intervene um, on uh, on foreign policy agenda too. So yeah, I wish I had a more sophisticated answer, but it really is just uh, it's just one of the big new Labour disasters. I uh, I agree, and I share that feeling of I wish I could say something sort of more sophisticated, but it, it ultimately is just a disaster. Um, and Colm sort of took the words right out of my mouth there. Um, one thing I would say on Iraq was that um, while unambiguously a disaster, perhaps in retrospect we shouldn't be uh, surprised by it. Um, Blair's foreign policy uh, had already been sort of fairly um, well established when Britain joined the US to uh, bomb Iraq in 1998 when Saddam Hussein uh, didn't uh, cooperate with UN weapons inspectors and Operation Desert Fox. Um, and and uh, Britain had also joined in the NATO bombing of, of Kosovo in 1999. So there was clearly precedent there uh, for Blair to 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 follow the, the US into Iraq. Um, and I, I mean, I look, I, I agree with um, Colin's assessment that there's certainly an element of uh, personal, almost sort of messianic uh, complex um, that contributed to um, Blair's decision uh, uh, to, to, uh, to, to, to go ahead with that war. Um, and a different note, um, I think in terms of thinking about the legacies of new labor, I think that one of the potentially interesting legacies of the war is that it raised the profile of um, uh, of the anti-war movement in, in Britain again, and actually um, re-emboldened some of the sort of anti-imperialist far left parts of the party um, that had been somewhat dormant in the decades prior to the war in Iraq. So you have Jeremy Corbyn, for example, example chairing the Stop the War Coalition from, from 2011 onwards, so after uh, Blair's out of office, but he was, he was involved in its founding alongside other people who had been active on, on the, the, the far left or in uh, the new urban left um, in, in earlier decades. And, and I think that by... Um, putting a highly aggressive and unpopular foreign policy back on the political agenda, the Iraq war kind of refocused the left of the Labour Party around a clear anti-war message, sort of hearkening back to the politics of, of the anti-Vietnam war uh, uh, movement. Um, and actually kind of uh, perhaps strengthened or um, led to a reemergence of divisions between the center left and the left of the party, which hadn't gotten so much airtime in the early years of the Blair government. Um, so in a sense, I think we might see the Iraq war as, as laying the grounds for, for Corbynism. Great. Well, thank you. I'm going to take you slightly perhaps out of your comfort zone and move much more onto even more recent history and looking slightly forward into some sort of political analysis. And that is what should the current Labour Party under Keir Starmer's leadership learn from New Labour? And we'll start with the style of politics. So what did New Labour do well in managing the media then? And what lessons can be learned and applied to today's sort of media environment with the rise of social media? Please, would you like to start on that? Um, sure. I mean, I, I think it is quite a different um, media context today um, than uh, that which we had in, in, in 1997. 
Um, you know, so famously in 1997, um, it was Labour's ability to court the white, the uh, right wing press that was very effective in helping it um, win uh, win leadership. Um, I don't think those organs of the press matter or at least matter in quite the same way. Um, so um, Peter Dory has an interesting article on Corbynism where he notes that in the 2017 election where the Liberal Party uh, didn't do as well as it needed to, but did better perhaps than might've been expected, um, a surprising number of Daily Mail and Sun voters actually voted Labour indicating perhaps that some of that older media um, is not as relevant as it, it has been. Um, I think that we have seen um, Starmer really try to ape some of the political messaging or style of new labor. And I think we've seen it perhaps in actually some of his less effective moments. So, for example, um, he has at points deployed a very sort of talking point heavy style. There was a, a period a few months ago where he was repeating the words fresh start with a sort of almost alien like uh, repetitiveness. Um, or, for example, Rachel Reeves' slogan, growth, growth, growth. I think these sort of have some of the hallmarks of um, New Labour's emphasis on slogans and on really super clear political messaging. But frankly, I think that the Starmer team is actually much more effective when it breaks away from sloganeering or at least adds to slogans with really substantive policy analysis um, which again was something that the Blair government, the Blair, the Blair campaigns did very effectively combine uh, sharp political messaging with real precision on policy. And up until this point, I, I think we there's been quite a lot of critiques of the Starmer leadership that they haven't been that substantive on policy. But I think we are beginning to see a turnaround there, which I very much hope uh, will continue. Um, and we certainly have begun to see uh, a, a, much, a much meatier uh, a policy offer being fleshed out at uh, the last conference last week. Yeah, I'd, I'd firstly echo Lisa's point about um, the symbiotic relationship between effective policy and uh, effective style and messaging and policy because they do feed each other they're very they're different and have to be delivered in different ways but they do feed each other slogans without policy just sound shallow and that is something that i think uh politicians underestimate but voters do understand um what i would add is lisa's right that um starmer has drawn from new labor rhetorical techniques and made direct references um, there is also personnel links here. So we could talk about a figure like Deborah Mattinson, who is very much a, a key advisor to Keir Starmer, but was also a key advisor to uh, New Labour in the 90s, worked very closely with Philip Gould, um, has long been doing focus groups and other kinds of opinion research and using them to generate particular slogans and categories of voter analysis. So there is a clear personnel link that we can draw between um, the New Labour electoral moment and Starmer's electoral moment. Um, I think, though, the lessons should be um, should be drawn, but should be subtle. New Labour's media strategy was based on the media of the time, and very explicitly so. Its critique of Michael Foote in 1983 was partly that Michael Foote was pursuing an electoral strategy suited to a different age. Big platform-style meetings um, did not suit the televisual age. It did not suit the 1980s and 1990s. And New Labour made a very modernist, modernising argument about electoral strategy. They said, in the 90s, we need to think more about sloganeering. We need to think about the five second slot and the 24 hour news channel. There are some similarities with today, but I think we would all agree there are some differences. Social media being one. 
and specifically the decentralization of media. Um, there are far fewer gatekeepers, far more plural voices, and that makes political messaging harder. So a proper lesson of new labor and style might be to adapt your political uh, messaging and style to the times in which you live. And that means getting into the black box of videos, five second videos that are shared in WhatsApp groups, something that very successful political movements understand. I've been encouraged recently by Labour's marketing in that it clearly understands that. There's lots of like five and 10 second attack clips on people like Kwasi Kwarteng, which are clearly designed to be copied and pasted into WhatsApp groups. And that suggests to me that Starmer's marketing are learning the real lesson of new Labour, which is you need to adapt to the circumstances and the media environment in which you live. So what else has uh, the current Labour Party under Starmer sort of copied or learnt from New Labour? Is that tacking to the centre? Is it an emphasis on competence? Is it a standing up to the party? Lise, what do you think? There are a lot of similarities and a lot of differences, and um, I gather we'll come to the, the differences in a minute. Um, both Starmer and uh, Blair benefited from exceptionally tired conservative governments that had been in government for over a decade. So 11 years in Blair's case and 12 and counting um, today. Um, and both are in a position where they can point very easily uh, to the failures of the, the Tories, um, particularly on the economy. Um, both um, Starmer and Blair's uh, leadership campaigns benefited from allegations of sleaze and corruption in government. Um, so Blair made much of the cash for questions scandal. Um, uh, and Starmer, of course, can attack the Tory government's record of corruption over the COVID era, uh, uh, party gate, and so on and so forth, the many scandals that define the Johnson uh, government. Um, I think that um, particularly after uh, Starmer's recent conference speech, we can really see um, Starmer like New, new Labour um, using the language of uh, aspiration and of technological modernization. Um, and um, uh, both, I, both leaders, I think, are, uh, have used the rhetoric of, of innovation. Um, so Blair used the rhetoric of in innovation and modernization. Uh, uh, around things like computerization, for example, particularly uh, on education. Uh, and Starmer is now um, doing that on, on uh, green, green jobs and kind of invoking this notion that Britain uh, can be an innovator in certain areas of the economy. Um, I think that there is similar messaging on themes like crime, uh, need to retain law and, and, and order. I think that you know, Starmer is certainly using his sort of prosecutorial uh, history or experience in that in that respect. Um, and I think that there is a kind of similar rhetoric um, on 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 business, of course, you know, uh, Blair being sort of famously keen to position the Labour Party as as pro business. Um, and Starmer in the re in his recent conference speech saying, I'm not just pro business, I want to partner with business. Um, so positioning government as a, as, a, as a partner with business on a modern industrial strategy. Though again, I think that actually in policy terms, this might end up looking like something quite different than what the Blair 
uh, governments were or the Blair campaign was offering. So that's a lot of similarities, but there's also a lot of differences, which I know we're going to get to. So, uh, you know, I want to want to make sure we do, because in some ways, I think there's actually more differences than than there are similarities. Lise was very comprehensive there, so I'll only add two more similarities. Um, you mentioned positioning against the left. I think it's quite obvious that there are some within Starmer's office, particularly uh, uh, political advisors um, who are who have rose through um, the party ranks from student politics onwards, who very much uh, abide to a particular view of Labour history, where Labour wins when it bashes the left. And I think that there, there is clearly an element there. Um, there's also a necessity. Um, Starmer has had a lot of criticism from the left. So there's a political defense strategy there. We think about Starmer's speech last year. He was heckled several times. So there's a there's a, a kind of a conflictual relationship between parts of the Labour left and extra Labour left and Starmer's leadership, where Starmer's strategy has been to echo some of the strategies and tactics pursued by Blair and, I should stress, by Neil Kinnock, who perhaps is the more relevant historical um, analogy here. Uh, I think a lot of Labour staffers who are around Starmer could probably quote you Kinnock's speech in 1985 against Militant by heart. So that's the first. And then the second is um, a couple of policy similarities. So I am struck by Starmer's willingness to use a sort of centre-left populism um, in policies like the windfall tax. Uh, windfall taxing uh, companies in, in energy companies that have got uh, profits they were never expecting to that rack into the billions while ordinary people quote unquote suffer. Um, that is quite similar to uh, what New Labour argued in terms of privatised utilities um, and the need to uh, impose windfall taxes in the 90s. And the other similarity is that what the windfall tax is going to be spent on responds to an urgent issue of the time. I've already mentioned that New Labour wanted to spend their windfall tax on the problem of youth unemployment, which was a key issue in the 90s after the successive recessions of the 80s and 90s. And uh, Starmer wants to spend their windfall tax on the energy crisis, again, responding to a, an urgent political issue where wide swathes of the, of the country are very concerned about. So that's a, an interesting similarity. Um, and I suppose a third uh, similarity, another policy one, is an emphasis on childcare and um, education and NHS investment. I was struck that when Rees was asked, was asked, how would you spend the um, 45p once you reimposed it? This is, of course, before the Conservatives U-turned on that. Uh, Rachel Reeves said they would spend it on nurses. That's quite a new Labour style argument. So, Lise, coming to you, what are the main differences between new Labour and Labour under Starmer? Um, so um, there's quite a long list of differences. Um, obviously, uh, the UK's position post-Brexit seriously changes the Labour Party's position on Europe. Blair was, of course, a key advocate for Britain to be a membership of the a member of the European Union, uh, and Starmer uh, accepts that we are out and says Labour will make Brexit work. Um, so that's one one difference. Um, I think a really key difference between New Labour and uh, Starmer is on the absence in the Starmer project uh, or policy platform of really any allusion to or mention of constitutional reform. Um, New Labour followed on and took up a long campaign to modernize government and in office it uh, introduced reforms on devolution, uh, directly elected authority for London and it and it reformed the House of Lords. 
Um, and it presented those in in uh, nearly represented those in their 1997 manifesto as part of a broader project to really clean up government. But these reforms uh, harkened back to long campaigns for constitutional reform that had their roots in uh, the 19. 70s, uh, as well as in uh, movements like the Constitutional Reform Movement Charter 88 in the 1980s. And this is not on the agenda of the Starmer uh, leadership at all, despite the fact that we know that uh, it is on the agenda of some policymakers uh, around the Starmer leadership. So, for example, um, Gordon Brown, uh, well, there has recently been leaked policy documents um, uh, relating to a policy review uh, undertaken by Gordon Brown, um, which advocated for uh, devolving uh, economic uh, powers um, and abolishing the House of Lords. But this is not on the formal agenda of Starmer's labor in any in any way. And um, uh, the Starmer leadership has effect effectively blocked a recent Labour Party vote to support uh, proportional representation. And another really uh, key difference between a new labor and Starmer's labor is in terms of the role of government and uh, in terms of the party's attitude to the state. Um, so whilst you know we might kind of broadly see new labor as trying to take a somewhat more anti-statist political orientation, um, Starmer's speech explicitly positioned the Labour Party as not afraid to use the power of government to help working people succeed uh, by tackling the climate emergency head on and using it to create the jobs of the future. Um, and uh, we can see this quite neo-statist approach, particularly to climate policy in the uh, Starmer, Starmer Labour's Green Prosperity Clan, uh, plan, sorry, um, and its emphasis on uh, new green jobs um, in uh, the new British sovereign wealth fund proposals um, and in proposals for a publicly owned um, great British energy company. Um, and, and finally, I think that one area where uh, we can see differences between New Labour and Starmer, and this is particularly sort of interesting to me as a historian, is actually in their view of Labour's past. Um, one thing I found fascinating in, in Starmer's speech um, was his invocation of the 1970s. Um, and of course, for New Labour, as for Thatcher, the 1970s represented a time of crisis, of economic mismanagement, of uh, uh, flying pickets, um, of illegal strikes, right? So there was always, I think, underpinning New Labour, a kind of uh, a picture, an image of, of an old Labour um, that was that was that was bad, and that was very much directly associated with the 1970s as an era and a decade. And what I thought found very fascinating about Starmer's speech was his invocation of the 1970s um, as a time of hope when uh, my parents never doubted for one second that things would get better. And I thought that that spoke to a potentially fascinating and and potentially important um, repositioning of the historical legacy of the 1970s and everything that it represents within the British left. Yeah, I mean, that was very comprehensive and I have very little to add. I agree with everything Lee said. Um, the, the point about the 1970s is, is particularly striking actually, and not something that I had immediately clocked when I'd listened to the speech, but Lisa's points were very compelling. Um, on the constitutional reform agenda, the, the Current difference between New Labour, where, as Lee says, constitutional reform was very central to its political messaging in the 90s, 
and today where Starmer is so far, so far avoiding it, is particularly striking because as a young lawyer, Keir Starmer was part of the scene of liberal left constitutional reform in the 1990s. He worked with people like Francesca Klug um, and was very much part of um, that broad political tradition that were interested in things like electoral reform and devolution and wider constitutional reforms. He also has direct personal links because of his work in Northern Ireland. I mean, one of the major constitutional uh, things that New Labour did was building on the work of John Major, um, succeed in getting the Irish peace process to a broadly satisfactory conclusion for the time, the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement for some other communities. And um, Starmer actively built on that legacy um, in some of his public roles before he became leader of the Labour Party, um, particularly in his work with the, um, the PSNI. So it's quite striking that even though Starmer has quite direct personal links with that constitutional politics of the 90s and 2000s, um, he shies away from it today. And I wonder if that's to do with the divisive legacies of the 2014 Scottish referendum and the 2016 Brexit referendum in exposing how constitutional politics can divide as well as unite political communities. In the 90s, there was a lot of optimism about constitutional politics. Perhaps there's less so today. And then the other second point I want to mention is just to build on Lisa's really excellent point about um, the role of the state and how Starmer's uh, labour is more comfortable with the state intervening in the economy. Um, I think perhaps this is to do with the climate crisis uh, and the seismic challenge that presents humanity at this particular moment, not to put too fine a point on it. It means that aversion to, say, picking winners, um, which is quite strong in the 90s, has less sway today. We need to pick winners. We need to pick renewable energy companies and make them succeed. Maybe not individual companies, but certainly sectors. Um, there was just a, an imperative to do so. So that kind of rhetoric that was very powerful from the right in the 90s, um, which made New Labour very fearful of, of using the state um, in uh, more activist ways, has receded. Um, and it does mean that Starmer is more comfortable in drawing on historical legacies of industrial policymaking that are more similar to Wilson and Attlee and even Callaghan um, than uh, to Tony Blair. So let's talk then about mistakes that New Labour made, whether losing, arguably losing working-class votes, supporting Scotland. Is there anything that Starmer should avoid? And what are those differences? What has Starmer avoided so far? And Colm, do you want to start? So I think... Um... There's definitely a case to be made that New Labour took um, its quote unquote electoral base for granted. Now, I personally don't like the language of electoral base uh, because it leads to wrong conclusions. But it is true that New Labour focused relentlessly on the swing voter in the swing seat which meant that their policy offer for other parts of the country attenuated. There were broad-based policies that appealed to all parts of the country, things like NHS investment, education investment, um, action on crime, uh, realistically too. But um, there were communities that were not prioritised by the new Labour government. Um, I don't think Starmer's leadership has so far fallen into that trap, partly because of this overwhelming discourse on the Red Wall, 
Um, there is perhaps a case to be made that it is taking its more progressive voters for advantage in the cities because it knows it needs to win over seats that went Tory last time. But I'm not so sure I agree with that, particularly because of the recent announcements on the green transition, um, which are uh, appealing to um, a certain inner city voter. So I guess that's one major mistake that New Labour did that the Starmer leadership have clearly learned from. There's also a policy difference, which is not necessarily a mistake. I think New Labour were right in, or at least it was understandable for New Labour to take a more pro-market position in the 90s and 2000s. It certainly uh, fitted uh, ideological currents and seemed to be working for much of the 2000s until the 2008 crash. Um, Starmer may be selling it in a New Labour way, but it is also quite clear that Starmer's leadership are more comfortable with the state as an economic actor. Um, the very idea of a state-owned energy generation company, an investment bank and a wealth fund, and for setting industrial strategy targets like doubling onshore wind, tripling solar energy and quadrupling offshore wind. I mean, this is the kind of directive industrial strategy and level of state uh, intervention in the economy that New Labour would have dismissed as old school nationalisation and picking winners. So is that learning from a mistake? I'm not sure, but it's certainly different. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, um, I really agree uh, with Colm's last point there on the state. And, I, and I, I think we'll hopefully come back to that in that I think this is one of these places where uh, more new labor and Starmer labor um, really truly do diverge. I mean, in terms of the mistakes that new labor made, I mean, there, there's a lot, right? Um, you know, the thing, things that Starmer's labor should avoid doing you know, avoid avoid a foreign policy disaster if you ever get into government. Um, uh, I'm not sure we know very much about what Starmer's foreign policy would look like, um, but there are certainly um, lessons to be learned there. Um, uh, the the Starmer uh, leadership needs to learn from the the attrition of the Labour vote in Scotland. Um, interestingly enough, uh, it, the Labour vote is really picked up again in Scotland as of a recent YouGov poll that just came, came across my Twitter feed just before I signed on the, the Zoom call tonight. So perhaps there are some uh, some signs there that, that could be going in a different direction. Um, uh, the Starmer leadership should learn uh, to avoid the kind of the risk of being too centralizing in government, um, a charge often leveled against uh, against Blair and his allies. Um, and again, returning to these broad themes about the sort of the um, the mistakes that that, lab that New Labour made, um, the Starmer leadership needs to be uh, uh, needs to be cautious about being too relaxed about inequality uh, and social policies designed to alleviate it in a, in a time of, of, of skyrocketing poverty. Um, and uh, whilst I know we've seen a lot of talk of inequality um, over the last few years, um, my concern is that perhaps given its association with some of the, the policy proposals or projects of Corbynism, um, concerns about basic social justice uh, uh, and economic inequality could get sidelined by the Starmer project, uh, and I would I would certainly um, urge them to keep that on the agenda, um, and you know not be I think it was in Peter Mandelson's words um, too relaxed about people getting filthy rich. So as long just as they pay their to... taxes, as long as they pay their taxes, that was as the long end. as they pay their taxes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Which they didn't in some respects, but yeah, yeah. So just to bring this section to a close, Starmer and Blair are very different characters. So how much of New Labour's success 
rested on the the talent and charisma of Blair, and then therefore how replicable is it for any other leader, but particularly Starmer? So I think Labour would have won in 1997 with an array of leaders. Um, And I don't think that's just speculation. We can point to, for example, Labour's performance in the European elections in 1994. A very different set of elections, to be fair, but that was under Margaret Beckett, so that was after John Smith died. And it was also a, a pretty comprehensive landslide victory. I would say, though, that, um, as I said in earlier remarks, Blair was a charismatic leader in ways that bolstered Labour support in uh, some parts of the country that another leader, I think, struggled, uh, would have struggled to do, to, to, to do the same kind of success that Blair did. So um, in that sense, I don't think that's replicable. I don't think Starmer has that kind of charisma. I don't think he's that kind of politician. Um, I wonder if that's a, a bad thing or a good thing. I'm very struck by the fact that Keir Starmer, when he's asked who his favourite Labour leader is, tends to say Harold Wilson and Nick Thomas Simmons, um, uh, who is is in the shadow cabinet and is also a a historian of Labour, has recently published a biography of Harold Wilson that Keir Starmer has endorsed. Um, I wonder if Harold Wilson is the kind of political figure we should be looking to um, that Starmer might more resemble. Somebody who a lot of people perhaps underestimate, but achieves more than we expect. Um, this is a good place to come in. Thank you for um, kind of drawing us into the realm of historical um, analogies. Um, so I, uh, I I sort of agree, broadly speaking, that, you know, um, John Smith was the the, you know, the, the prime minister Britain never had, that it's likely that John Smith would have been prime minister had he not died in 1994. Um, uh, but indeed, of course, Blair's charisma um, was was galvanizing and was important to to New Labour's successes. But on this question of who we should really be comparing Starmer to, um, I agree very much with Colin's um, uh, point that that Harold Wilson is important. But I also found when I was watching the conference speech um, the other day that what it actually really reminded me of was the 1945 Labour Manifesto um, and the messaging that was that was contained within that. And specifically, um, a kind of rhetoric of order against chaos. So as a result of the disastrous um, economic decisions that the Conservative government had just taken, you know, just, just, just before that, uh, Starmer, you know, had the opportunity to address his party, um, he was very much able to portray the Tories as a party of chaos and a party of real economic mismanagement and to position labor as the kind of grown-ups in the room. Um, and that's a strategy which I think we, we we did see with Wilson, but which I, was very, very central to the political messaging of the Attlee government, um, which really presented itself as a party of sort of rational progress. Um, and it seems to me that in the moment that we're in, when we truly are facing a real serious economic crisis, when um, the social conditions facing this country are in many ways worse than they have been for a very, very, very long time, actually being the growing up in the room as opposed to perhaps the exciting charismatic leader might be more effective for, for, uh, for labor. And um, if I was advising Starmer, which I'm not, um, I would I would advise him to lean into that rather than trying to ape some kind of 
Blairite charisma, which frankly doesn't really suit him very well either. So more Harold Wilson, more Clement Attlee, um, less Tony Blair in terms of the optics. I'd like to pick up a bit on the idea of taking the center ground, because that's something that I think New Labour are very associated with, and most people would say Starmer's done to some extent. But I'd love to get your, your takes on what you think that means and how it compares to or compares now to, to 1997. Um, Chusala Kong. Sure, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, whenever I hear the term centre ground, I cannot help but think about Andrew Hinmore's fantastic uh, political science book, which is probably about 15 years old now, on New Labour and the centre. And Andrew's argument was that New Labour partly defined what the centre was through very agile rhetorical invention and uh, discursive intervention, if you want to use the academic term. Uh, what he means by that is New Labour took policies that uh, and, and ideas that were seen as radical and instead presented them as part of the centre. They were helped by the disarray of the Tories, but they were also helped by astute messaging, by um, a clear analysis and a clear set of policy uh, goals, the kind of stuff Lisa and I have been talking about in this podcast. So I think um, taking the centre ground is actually partly about political definition. So if you can define um, a radical green transition, and I really do think uh, turning to renewable um, gen energy generation by 2030 is not something to be sniffed at at all. If you can define that as the grown-ups in the room, as the political centre ground, then that is a real impressive area of political alchemy. Um, and uh, if, if they can pull it off, will be really commended. But you can't just make it up. Um, there are political constraints. You can't just say this is the centre. Um, there are uh, attitudinal constraints. There are economic constraints to that. There are social constraints. So to be able to achieve that alchemy, you do need to give ground elsewhere. Um, and I guess uh, what Starmer's leadership um, is doing, like other Labour leaders, including Blair, but also including Wilson and Attlee, is they're picking their battles. They're conceding ground on some policy areas, avoiding debates like the plague in others, um, such as the, the trans debates. I think they're, they're avoiding that like the plague, um, uh, for better or worse. And I think people will disagree, disagree or agree on that. But they're choosing the areas in which they think they can do some political and discursive innovation as fine as the centre ground. So I think the notion of the centre ground as conceived of in uh, term in, in the terms uh, of new labor um, is pretty outdated, is, is rooted in um, the politics of the end of the Cold War um, and a politics which was um, very concerned with the, the rise of, 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 a, of a growing middle class um, and the breakdown of uh, class politics that had been uh, more prominent prominent in the early and, and, and mid 20th century. Um, I am sincerely not sure what we would call the political center in 2022. Um, I think it's been hugely disrupted by the rise of the far right. It's been hugely disrupted um, by by a whole variety of social movements and 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 uh, and, and as, as well as by by the real quite dramatic tilt to the right um, on the part of some aspects of uh, of the conservatives. But then equally uh, complicating that things like the leveling up agenda. Um, and so I think that I think I think it's very messy. I I, I don't think that um, an, an easy straightforward invocation of the center ground is necessarily going to get us very far 
in trying to um, develop a political strategy for new labor, I think, or sorry, for, for labor under Keir Starmer. Um, I think uh, labor can uh, try and um, promote policies that have mass appeal, um, which are nonetheless progressive. Um, and I think that's that's the strategy it should be taking. Um, again, um, I am just, again, here uh, agreeing with Colm, um, but I, I think, again, what, what his work and his forthcoming book, which I urge everyone uh, to read when it comes out next year, really does a great job of showing is the ways in which um, New Labour took uh, policies and ideas um, that were from really across the political spectrum and managed to uh, position them um, uh, in, in, in terms that were politically palatable. Um, and so I don't think any of this has ever been a matter simply of appealing to the center ground. I don't think New Labour was a story fundamentally about appealing straightforwardly to the center ground. Um, and I, I certainly don't think that we can understand the center today, such as it might be, in terms of what the center of 1997 was either. Yeah, just to spin off that. I mean, first, thanks, Elise, for her her comments on the book. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I I agree quite strongly with that because um, when I mention him more, what his book is doing is critiquing simplistic ideas that there is such a thing as a center ground. It's that it's something you create. Um, and the reason it's may, maybe worth creating is it's a concept that means a lot to political journalists who then set the political weather. So if you're able to um, use that kind of language in order to uh, get outriders of the media to um, uh, talk about politics in ways that are favourable to you, then all power to you and do it. But as, a, as an academic analysis, it is, for all the reasons Lee said, quite, quite tricky because... Um, it, it depends on the idea of essentially two parties and a one dimension of political space. And as we know, there are multiple dimensions of political space. So there's the left-right economic divide, there's the culture divide, there's the divide in terms of loyalties, there's foreign policy, um, and there's multiple parties, particularly in the multi-union United Kingdom. We need to think about the SNP, we need to think about Northern Ireland. So the idea of a centre is really, as Lee says, a product of um, American political analysis of the Democrats and Republicans of the 1950s um, at a time when economic uh, policy agendas were, were, were arguably at, at their strongest and most defining for politics more broadly. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a flawed concept. It has appealed to journalists, though, and that's where rhetorically defining your, your policy agenda, including progressive policies as the centre or alternative terms as moderate, as in tune with um, the, the real or ordinary people, as opposed to um, the out of touch government, is all a very effective rhetorical um, making and is worth doing. But as a form of academic analysis, I, I think it's quite flawed. More straightforward question, or actually maybe maybe a difficult one as well. Um, how would the likes of Blair and Mandelson tackle the culture wars? Because it strikes me that that just didn't exist back then in the same way it does now. Yeah, so culture wars. So I don't think you have the level of fragmentation back in the 80s and 90s that you do today. And that is partly a, a feature of our, our different media landscape. But there are controversies that are comparable, at least um, initially, uh, in the 80s and 90s and today. So a key one would be sexuality. Um, the politics of gay rights were really contentious in the 1980s and 1990s in ways that People like to forget because it makes people uncomfortable to remember just how unpopular same-sex relationships were 
Um, if you look at the polling on this, um, there was quite a lot of hostility to homosexuality well into the 1990s. Um, now, that caused political problems for Labour because it was committed to overturning Section 28, the um, homophobic legislation of Margaret Thatcher's government, um, and to equalising the age of consent and to other liberal reforms. So New Labour did have to deal with these issues um, to some degree, um, arguably not as much as Starmer's Labour will have to, but it did. Um, how did they deal with that? Well, as much as possible by avoiding the issue. So when Blair was Shadow Home Secretary and speaking to Labour audiences, he would play up his um, uh, commitment to gay rights. So he gave a speech to a Stonewall Fringe in 1993 Labour Conference, for example, where he very much included gay rights as part of the broader project of modernisation. But it is quite striking that repealing Section 28 was not in the 1997 manifesto, but yet New Labour still tried to do it. Now, how successful was that? Well, New Labour did end up repealing Section 28, and they did try in the first government. So there's an argument there that, well, OK, you pick your rhetorical battles and you might be able to succeed in progressive agendas without driving wedges between your support bases. However, um, the first attempt to repeal Section 28 was vetoed by the House of Lords on the uh, Salisbury Convention. Because it wasn't in the manifesto, the House of Lords felt it could have a right to intervene in this question. And you had a lot of lords and ladies who had reservations about the policy because um, they were of maybe of a certain generation. Some of them were pure bigots. So New Labour had to put it in the 2001 manifesto. They just had to face up to the debate in the end. So New Labour did have a strategy. Um, I think if we are going to go into an election with the kind of polling leads that we see even close to what we see today, um, then it might be wise for Starmer's Labour not to talk about it that much, but I would not recommend doing the 97 strategy because it might bite them on the arse. Lise, does that kind of, would that, would you agree with that analysis? <laughs> I do agree with that analysis. Um, I mean, I think that Blair uh, and, and Mandelson did, did tackle their own culture wars, and, and I think that they're pro-family rhetoric and their tough on crime agenda were plays in the culture war of the 1990s. Um, I, um, I think that uh, the massive hostility um, that the uh, on the part of the press and the right to the quote unquote loony left of the 1980s um, really caused New Labour to be extremely cautious um, about um, aligning themselves with those 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 more more radical and more progressive movements, um, and and cause them to be very cautious on on on, on these fronts. Um, my sense is uh, that that is broadly the strategy that we are seeing from from Starmer's um, labor as well, and perhaps there's the um, the influence of new labor figures behind that. So, for example. In 2021, Blair penned a piece for the time, uh, the Times uh, urging Labour to reject the culture wars. Now let's focus to end on legacy. It's something that you've mentioned previously. So firstly, and I think I'll probably come to Colm uh, first on this, why didn't new Labour become embedded within the Labour Party in the same way that Thatcherism was, in, was and has been in the Conservative Party. Now, Gordon Brown, after the Blair left, even though he was a key architect of New Labour, sought to, to slightly reduce his sort of um, emphasis on some of the New Labour forms. And then you had a, a Brownite in Ed Miliband who um, made a particular sort of 
play of opposing some of the new Labour um, sort of legacy, and then obviously Corbyn, who was a long-standing uh, critic of quite a distant sort of critic. So why didn't New Labour become embedded in the same way that, for example, Thatcherism did within the Conservatives? It's a really brilliant question, actually. I've never quite heard the question put in that way, and I think it's a very um, instructive way of thinking about it, that direct comparison between the parties. I think there are a number of factors at play here. There's partly um, the ugly factor of party management. Um, the Labour Party is... I think this is fair to say, normally harder to govern than the Conservative Party because of its institutional structure. It's much more federated. It's much more decentralised. Um, the it, Both parties are broad churches, but the Labour Party has very vocal wings of its broad church that are often in active conflict. And when you're leader of the Labour Party, who places a very high emphasis on discipline, like Blair, like Brown, that can lead you into, um, uh, frankly, authoritarian methods of party management, which were very, very understandable, given Labour's repeated electoral defeats and its desire to win, and very much can be defended on those grounds, but did have knock-on effects and did leave um, problematic legacies for New Labour's reputation within the party. I refer to, for example, the work of Lewis Minkin, who wrote an important work, very dense, but a very important study of New Labour's party management, which shows how um, control over selections, you know, tactics that all factions use, don't get me wrong, but because New Labour was so dominant in the 90s and 2000s, they were overwhelmingly using them. Um, these backfired. Um, you can, we can look at, for example, Ken Livingstone becoming mayor of London, despite New Labour's very aggressive attempts to stop that happening. And then we can look at the rise of Corbynism as part of reactions to that party management. So that's one very internal factor. Um, I think there's also the Iraq war. Lisa already mentioned that. I think that's it's absolutely correct to link Corbynism to the Iraq war. It meant that political actors who otherwise would have very small support bases um, ended up having much wider ones because you had broadly liberal centre-left figures being horrified by the Iraq war and therefore turning up to stop the war marches and being put in contact with uh, other political figures who they probably wouldn't have had much time to do with in, in another context. So the Iraq war is quite important. Um, I think the final issue as well is what I referred to about stealth taxation. You know, Thatcher's innovations were very confrontational and were therefore remembered. New Labour did quite a lot of policy work, as we've suggested. There were areas that they could have done more, but they did do a lot of policy work. But it was often packaged in deliberately consensual ways, which meant that it was quite hard for a long time for people who were sympathetic to New Labour within the party to point to um, a sort of revolutionary change or a, a kind of a vanguard package of politics in, in the way that Thatcherites and the Conservative Party could easily do so. They could point to the 1981 budget, um, the 1986 Big Bang, and these other quite trumpeted, quite consciously controversial moments. In some ways, um, some aspects of New Labour have remained embedded uh, in the Labour Party. I mean, Clause 4, for example, has has, has not been re-overturned. The Labour Party has not recommitted itself to the nationalisation of the means of production. And in fact, the wording, the language of the, the new Clause 4, uh, for the many, not the few, was Jeremy Corbyn's uh, campaign slogan uh, in, a, in a kind of curious irony of, of Corbynism. Um, I agree uh, with Colm's assessment that the Labour Party has always been uh, harder to govern 
and more factionalized. Um, and I think that it's uh, broadly agreed that some of the authoritarianism um, and the, the, the close party management of the Blair years, uh, in a sense, sort of came back to bite the Blairites um, subsequent to, uh, you know, after 2010. Um, uh, I'll restate the point again that I think the legacy of the Iraq war really prevented an opportunity to um, do a lot of damage to the political legacies of new labor. And perhaps had Iraq not happened, um, the subsequent factionalizing of the party um, would not have been as, as severe um, and uh, the left of the party wouldn't have had as much purchase. Um, and then fundamentally times changed and inequality was put back on the agenda in a very big way following the financial crisis. Um, and Ed Miliband, um, for all of his, his you know, good, good qualities, um, was not a leader who was able to deliver a kind of coherent message that kept the, the, the core components and the core sort of policy project of Blairism uh, and New Labour um, relevant and coherent, which allowed for, um, a, you know, a, a really quite ultimately um, a successful attack by the left of the party under Jeremy Corbyn um, when, when Corbyn became leader. Um, and um, so, I mean, I think it's down to party structure. I think it's down uh, to Iraq. I think it's down to the nature of, uh, of, of the Blair project. And I think fundamentally, in some ways, new labor was very, very rooted in its time um, and in the, in, in, in the politics and the, ideolo the ideology of the 1990s, which is why, again, I think um, Starmer should be, and I think uh, so far seems to be uh, cautious about trying to take on board um, its policy vision wholesale uh, in 2022. Thanks. And finally, another aspect of legacy. What was the legacy of New Labour on politics outside of the party? So there's been elements within and around the new trust government that have attacked either directly or by implication criticised New Labour's focus on redistribution, saying that they didn't uh, focus enough on sort of, uh, in their phrase, growing the pie. Um, so what impact, what legacy did New Labour have, including on the Conservative Party, obviously Cameron talked about being the, the heir to Blair. So how much of a legacy has Blair left? Please. Um, so I think Osborne and uh, Cameron certainly drew on Labour's modernization program um, and leadership style. Um, and um, I think Blair is a is a sort of dominant is a very dominant figure um, in British politics and the British political imagination. Um, but, uh, and, you know, the Tories and the Lib Dems could today certainly have more, uh, charismatic leaders and, uh, and better comms. Um, but again, I think overall the politics of today are very different than those, um, of 2010 and require, um, different strategies from, from all parties. Um, 
yeah, I'll let Colin come in on this. Thanks. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'll answer that question about other parties, but I just want to echo Lisa's point about the different contexts. I think there are people within the Labour Party who tend to be sympathetic to, to New Labour, but also uh, uh, are very attracted to the idea of revisionism, to Gates, Glatt and Crossland like revisionism, the idea that you revise your policies given the times around you. Um, I think if you really do uh, align yourself to that social democratic tradition, then you should take it seriously and follow it through. And the 2020s are different to the 1990s. And many new Labour rights say that. My colleague Patrick Diamond, who used to um, work in the number 10 policy unit and is now an academic, would very much say that. John McTernan would very much say that. So uh, I think there's an aspect of... Um, New Labour's approach and attitude, if not necessarily the content of what it did, that could be taken up. But I think it echoes what Lee says, that these are very different times. On other parties, um, there's definitely um, some borrowing by Cameron and Osborne of uh, New Labour's electoral uh, instincts, particularly Philip Gould. Um, the un the uh, Unfinished Revolution was quite an influential text on the uh, Cameroon modernizers of the 2000s. That's very well documented. Um, New Labour are also hate figures for parts of the Conservative Party. It's very funny to listen to um, parts of the Labour Party talk about New Labour being um, effectively Thatcherites or effectively Tories, because if you listen to large parts of the Tory Party, New Labour were demons. You know, they uh, they were far too woke. Uh, they they introduced policies like the um, the uh, uh, incorporating the uh, Human Rights um, Act. Um, that are now demons for the Tories. Uh, you know, when Tories talk about lefty lawyers. Um, they're partly reacting to New Labour's constitutional and political legacy. Um, the key thing I would stress in our political moment is the institutional political economy legacy, and particularly the Bank of England. It was New Labour that made the Bank of England independent. Um, there were Tory chancellors who were interested in doing that beforehand, people like Ken Clark. But it was Gordon Brown that did it, and it bought them economic credibility um, in the bond markets and the currency markets, um, and allows them to pursue stealth taxation and redistribution, like we've discussed. Um, that relationship, um, the independent Bank of England, is going to now come under more strain as we move into an economic crisis where monetary policy and fiscal policy are going to be at each other's throats. We've already heard mutterings from the trust government about uh, the independence of the Bank of England um, and other independent institutions like the OBR introduced by the Cameron and Osborne governments. And I think that aspect of New Labour's legacy might become more central to our politics uh, as we move forward. Well, look, thank you both of you so much for uh, spending your evening with us. This has been fascinating and I have had a great time. Um, so, Lise, firstly, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, our pleasure having you. Uh, Colin, you said something about a book. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, yeah, so I'm just finalising the manuscript for Futures of Socialism, Modernisation, the Labour Party and the British Left, which will be published by Cambridge University Press next year, I say, fingers crossed. It should be. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's all right. There's not much going on at the moment, so I'm sure that will um, that'll go to time. Uh, Steve, as always, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Martin, and thank you both for a fascinating discussion. Thank you. It's hugely enjoyable. Thank you so much for having us on. And this has been the No Man's Land podcast. Thank you very much for listening.
and goodbye.